This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So I'm the end of the series on the rubber hitting the road. And it's interesting that ethical practice is saved for the end. <laughs> and so we're like, well, we got one more to do. What can we fill it up with? Most of us don't come to Buddhist practice because we heard about the precepts or you know, ethical practice. Most of us come for meditation and you know, discover to some extent or other later the ethical practices that the Buddha was teaching. Most of us sort of have an antipathy to ethical practice. It sounds to us in our culture, it's about right and wrong, do and don't, rules of conduct. It's got, you know, it's realms of judgment. It's unpleasant. You know? So we sort of don't want to hear about it. And because our tradition, our tradition, the Western tradition, is so embedded in ethical conduct as, a, as, a, as something about rules and following rules, we, we sort of transport that or overlay that onto the kinds of practices that the Buddha had in mind. So I'm going to suggest that ethical practice in, in the Buddha's understanding is functions like a koan. It's something, it's a koan is a, one of those puzzles that doesn't have an answer in Japanese Zen. So what, what is the sound of one hand clapping and that kind of thing. So what I thought I'd do would be to start by talking about where ethical practice stands in the context of the Buddha's teachings generally. Because it's not something apart from them. The Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. I teach about the dissatisfaction in life and the ending of that dissatisfaction. And he formulated that understanding in what's normally or generally known as the Four Noble Truths. And it's interesting because the formula for this teaching occurs scattered throughout the Pali canon. Pali is the language that is close to what the Buddha spoke and is the, the language in which his teachings are recorded. And, and the, the formula goes something like this. Such is suffering, such is the origin of suffering, such the cessation of su suffering, and, suf and such the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And that formula occurs scattered throughout the canon. The canon is a bookshelf about this big. And, you know, it's way too many pages. But there are only a couple of places where that formula is referred to as the Four Noble Truths. But that's how it's come to us highlighting these teachings. I think of them as four teachings, not, not particularly truths. And you, you're probably familiar with them. The first one is suffering. It's about suffering. And the Buddha, with each of these teachings, there's an instruction with them. So the first truth, the first teaching, is to be understood. And the Buddha didn't give a definition of suffering. He used the word dukkha, actually, and it's translated 
most, or it's rendered most generally as suffering, but it means more like dissatisfaction. Every, every form of, of dissatisfaction, including suffering. But he didn't do a definition. What he did was to give a list of things that exemplify dukkha. And the list, this is the list that he gave at, at what's reported to be the first sermon that he gave, the first teaching. Birth is suffering. Yeah, you know, Mark Twain once said, I wonder why, I always marvel at, at people rejoicing at births and, and mourning at deaths. He said, I guess it's because they're not the parties involved. <laughs> Birth is suffering. You know, we might look back on it fondly, but at the time, I think the reports are about 100% of us started with no. Birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, and losing what you cherish. Those are all on our dance card. I I bet you we've all had a taste of all of them. We all have. And if you look at these interesting, you know, usually those are rattled off and and, uh, it's usually thought of as birth is suffering, death is suffering. Not getting what you want is suffering, as if there's an equality there. But these are the realms of experience where dissatisfaction occurs. Notice there isn't a pleasant experience in the list. Celebration isn't dukkha. Ice cream, I guess. (laughs) Maybe not. But unpleasant experience is what the first list, that list is about, unpleasant experience. The second of these teachings is usually presented as the origin of suffering, the cause of suffering. And it's described, the word that the Buddha used is tanha. And it's a, it's a Pali word that is usually talked about as thirst and craving and wanting, desire. I think of it actually as, I, I find it, you know, the, the, the purely subject, subjective definition is kind of hard to grab onto. So I think of it as the condition of our organism as the result of our evolutionary history. If, our, if we had an ancestor who didn't care much about survival, that ancestor probably wouldn't have lived long enough to pass on its genes. So we have been cultured over, what, somebody here must know, 5,000 generations, something like that, to be, well, and all, all of the history before that. The survival impulse is pretty strong. We notice it. It's one of the three kinds of tanha, bhava tanha, to become, becoming. We're enthralled with becoming. We want to be in the future and we want to be something. I think that's a natural kind of thing. We've all got it. It's built in. And we want that future to be pleasant. Kama tanha, it's the second kind of tanha. We want it to be pleasant. It's not so much that we want it to be a good show. But when we get up in the morning, we don't say, 
oh, how do I make myself miserable today? <laughs> we, don't, we don't start by saying, you know, that restaurant last night was horrible, let's go back. <laughs> we don't. We, we look for, we navigate our lives by trying to increase the pleasantness of our experience. That's how we guide ourselves. Kamatanha. It's not the desire for any one thing. It's the general tendency of our organism to want pleasant experience. It's probably a survival advantage to have pleasant experience and not to have unpleasant experience. Vibhavatanha. Unpleasant experience, make it go away. Make it go away. Now, you know, at the extremes, if you want to make it go away, you blow yourself up with as many of who you want to go away as possible. If you want to continue into the future, you can leave children or a legacy of some kind, or like Lee Brasington likes to call it, the immortality project. We can fantasize heaven or a future rebirth or something like that. Something that creates for us a, a sense of continuity and extension into the future. So these are built into the organism, and when they encounter that the list of things on the first truth, unpleasant experience, we get dukkha. Suffering is a composite experience from unpleasantness, which just on its own is just unpleasant. But when we meet it with resistance or wishing, longing, dukkha. You want to, you know, you want to. Notice dukkha, not getting what you want. Think of something where you didn't get what you want. Pure dukkha. I mean, what did you, what did you not get? It's the not getting that's painful. Getting what you don't want. Oh, I have to work with so-and-so. Oh, uh-huh. you know? Getting what you don't want. Losing what we cherish. We all know things are impermanent, but, you know, oh no, somebody stole my pen. So we look for the dukkha. The Buddha's instruction with tanha is to abandon it. Not necessarily to make it stop, not that we could make it stop. You know, the impulse to act. Neuroscience is, you know, among the things that have become clear is that the impulse to action, the intention arises uh, as much as a third of a second before we become aware of it. You know, it's sort of like the foot hits the brake when somebody cuts in on you. You don't even, it, it doesn't even go through, you know, and then you think about it. Good thing I hit the brake. Good thing I was paying attention. You know, it's, uh, tanha rises. The Buddha spotted it and is to be abandoned. The third truth is the truth of cessation. And this is the, usually the cessation of suffering, but if you read the text closely, in that first sermon, the Buddha says it's the cessation of that very tanha that is the cessation of dukkha. It's not that you're, you know, the Buddha, supposedly a fully awakened being, he got old. He said this body's held together like an old cart with leather straps. He got sick, he died from being sick. He got old, he got sick, he died. You know, these things happen to him. But if they're not met with resistance, if the tanha no, doesn't fire, cessation. 
So the path to the cessation, which is the fourth truth, is to be cultivated. It's the Eightfold Path. My experience is that a lot of people are not really, really intimately familiar with the elements of the Eightfold Path. This is the Buddhist program, really. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. This is what, this is his instructions. And it's not a one-fold path. It's not a sit and meditate under a tree. It's an eightfold path. In my group in Davis, we think of it as a basketball. Yeah. So here's the eightfold basketball. It's a sphere. It's about 15 inches across. It's brown. It's got dimples on it. It's got black stripes on it. It's made of rubber. It's full full of uh, compressed air. It weighs a couple pounds. Is that eight? Anybody counting? That's close to it. So it's the eightfold basketball. But you can't play with just the brown. It's the whole basketball. And the whole eightfold path is one path. It's a way of being. Each of the elements of which is in support of the cessation of tanha, of the abandonment of tanha. So the elements of the path Right understanding? Well, you know, the path, it's, let me just run through the list of the elements of the path. And I'm going to do it with the word right. Right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And the word that is translated as right is in Pali is sama. And it's often rendered, at Spirit Rock, they render it as wise, sometimes skillful or appropriate. But what it means is that it's an understanding that enables the cessation of tanha. It's an understanding, a recognition, so that when we see, when tanha arises in our organism, in our experience, we recognize it. So we can abandon it. If we don't recognize it, we're about to jump on board. Right understanding is knowing how to wake up and knowing how to stay awake. Right intention is the intention not to be suckered into following right along with, you know, tanha, with those impulses that arise. Some of the impulses that arise, you know, may be for the benefit of oneself or others. And those are fine, the Buddha says, but when when those Impulses arise that are not for, it's what he told the Kalamas. Those impulses arise that are not for the benefit of yourself or others, that are for the, for the detriment of yourself or others. Abandon it. So right intention. And then there's speech, action, livelihood. This is the realm of ethical practice. It's at the heart of the Eightfold Path. It's three-eighths of it. It's, it's the way we live off the cushion. It's the way we live in interaction with other people. How do we live with other people? The last three, right effort, well, it takes an effort to not be suckered in by those impulses, to not need our experience to be pleasant in order to be happy. Because if we need it to be pleasant, in order to be happy, we're going to be unhappy at least half the time. So the trick is to figure out how to be with our experience, even when it's unpleasant. That's the job of sati and samadhi. The meditation practice that we do is learning how to pay attention. 
so that we can recognize these impulses. And what do we pay attention to? Right mindfulness is not just about paying attention to the breath. The breath is a tool. It's like a whetstone for sharpening a knife, for sharpening our attention. What we pay attention to? The arising of tanha, the arising of craving, of that desire that is going to lead us to do things. They help us survive. They've been good for our species, maybe too good. But uh, they don't give us peace of mind. So the elements of ethical practice are at the heart of the Eightfold Path. They're built in, and they are forms of practice. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. When it's translated that way, you hear it as right versus wrong. We hear commandments. And actually, these are not commandments. The Buddha intends them to be practices. Just like meditation, there is much a practice as the meditation practice. How are we doing with meditation? <laughs> well, we, but usually what happens is that we take the, the precepts, which are the way in which these speech, action, and livelihood get rendered as, as practice elements, and we turn them into rules. And there are five of them that people who have been hanging around Dharma circles for a while know. And at the simplest, they're translated as, or they're presented as, don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in sexual behavior that harms yourself or others, don't speak falsely, and lay off of the alcohol and drugs. Is that a fair summary? Anybody? That's pretty much how it goes. And how are we doing on the killing front? Anybody doing any killing? No, we're good. How about the... And what we do is we, when you make it a matter of judgment, a matter of a rule... We dispense with it. You know, it's not that the Buddha made this stuff up. The Buddha was pretty clever. The first four precepts were in use in the culture generally. They were the same four vows that the Jains took, Jains took. But the Buddha did with the precept practice, with ethical practice, what he did with other things. He would take the language in use at the time and flip the meaning. Almost, you know, he, so for example, the word Brahmin. In the India of the time, the word Brahmin referred to the priestly caste who were looked to for spiritual guidance and intercession with the gods, and they were the, the people who did the rituals, and it was something that you were born to. It was, you know, an early form of the caste system, and you were born into the, this caste, and that was and you became the highest of the castes. The Buddha said, a Brahmin is is one whose character is perfected and is no longer led by greed, hatred, and delusion. Not by birth, but by the attainment of character. So he said, that's a Brahmin. And then he would talk about Brahmins, but he meant something different. He talked about karma. You know, karma for the Brahmins was about what you do and what comes back at you from the universe. For the Buddha, it was about intention. He flipped the meaning entirely. It's intention. Karma's intention, and what comes back at you is what you remember about what you did, because you've got to live with your intention, and you inherit your intention. You inherit your memories. You inherit your karma. And he did the same thing with the precepts. The precepts, you know, the five 
precepts reflect usually the first two, right speech and right action. Start with right speech. That's usually rendered as not speaking falsely. And then there are some as right speech. And then, then it's all, there are some standards for what right speech is. It's kind, it's helpful, it's true, and it's timely. So if it's not true, if it's not kind, if it's not helpful, it's not timely, maintain noble silence. No need to say anything. Then there's what it's not. It's not harsh. It's not divisive. Saying, you do this, they're like that, they're, you know, taking sides, ganging up, that kind of stuff. It's not harsh, it's not divisive, it's not false, and it's not idle chatter. But idle chatter, you know, what's idle chatter? The Buddha says it's about intention. At the heart, it's about intention. Because what may appear idle chatter in one context, like chit-chatting about the weather, might be a technique for putting someone at ease who's nervous. Or it could be idle chatter. You can't tell from the outside. We can only tell these precepts. The precept practice is for ourselves, for the quality of our heart, not about judgment. I can think of situations in which speaking falsely is the ethical thing to do. The Nazis knock on the door and say, is Anne Frank here? I do know a senior Dharma teacher, a monk, who has said that you have to finesse that question. Like you say, what do you mean by is? <laughs> if it didn't work for Bill Clinton, it's not going to work for Anne Frank. <laughs> you know. The fundamentalist line is, don't lie, only speak the truth. I have a dear friend who's a hospice worker. She was working with a woman for quite a few weeks, and they'd become close. And on the morning of the day, as it turned out that she was to die, she then was working with her, and the woman turned to her and said, I know you're a Buddhist chaplain, but you do believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection, don't you? And Lynn said, of course I do. And the woman just relaxed, because here was her friend, and she'd been afraid that this friend was going to go to hell. And Lynn gave her the gift of a mind at ease. So what is the ethical thing to do there? This is a koan. This is a puzzle that you have to ask yourself What is the best possible action in this circumstance? What in this circumstance can I do or say that will not enhance suffering? Remember, suffering comes from unpleasant experience and from the resistance to it, or the the resistance to the change of it. So what's the best way in this circumstance? So it's a koan, and you answer the koan with your, with your life. Right? Speech, don't speak falsely. I think of it sort of like the way 
Well, I, th I think that that kind of um, relating to the precepts or rules this way is like what we do with children. You have a five-year-old, you say to him, don't run into the street. Don't run into the street. Cross at the corner. Right? You know, that's what we do. Don't run into the street. Rawr. Of course, any of us here only cross at the corner? <laughs> so somewhere between there and here, we've learned how to navigate the street. Don't, don't lie. You know, is um, maybe for children. It may be a very simple guideline. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just suggesting that it's a guideline that in certain context and, and the issue is our relationship to the context and to our own understanding, our ability to recognize suffering when we see it. Sometimes, usually, we're so absorbed in our own dukkha that we don't notice the dukkha of others. If you're looking for someone who's suffering, take a look around. We're all in that boat. All of us. So right, right speech, right action is usually rendered through the other precepts. The first one is usually presented or simply presented as not, don't kill. And then it, it becomes more subtle. Don't harm other beings. In fact, I've, I've seen people say the purpose of the precepts is to foster non-harming. But the precepts grow out of the out of the sila elements of the eightfold path. They grow out of the eightfold path. The eightfold path is the way of being without suffering. So it's without suffering for yourself and others. So that and that first precept, the word in Pali is panatipata. And that transits goes right along with the Buddha flipping the meaning. It's, it, it translates as not to strike at. So it's a quality of your heart. The first precept is, for purposes of training, I vow to refrain from striking at living beings. And it's a practice, like sitting down to meditate. I'm resolved to follow my breath. How'd that go? We all spend our time in la-la land there. Yeah. But it's the coming back again and again that is the, really the practice, the learning how to come back over and over again. We find ourselves striking at others. But maybe there are times, you know, do I, am I supposed to let the black widow spiders in my garden grow into the the tricycle that my granddaughter rides when she comes to visit and she plays in the backyard and the garden, am I supposed to? No, it's a koan. It's not a clear answer. No. The investigation is in our heart because this is about the quality of our heart. Panatipata. The second of the precepts is usually rendered as not to take what is not freely given. Adina dana. Dana. Giving. Adina. Adina dana. Not taking. 
what's not freely given, and it's aimed at the, the wanting, the craving part of ourselves, the greed part of ourselves. The first part, the first precept, is aimed at that ill will, that, that anger flash. Learn to recognize that. This one is about not taking what's not freely given. And when you render it as not stealing, I think of it as shoplifting. I don't know how you think of it. You know, maybe you're, what's not freely given is, but, you know, walking my dogs by the tennis courts, somebody leaves a tube of tennis balls. It's dusk, everybody's gone. There's three tennis, my dogs love tennis balls. And I noticed that impulse that showed up and went, oh, those are three tennis balls. I can, yeah. But, you know, the practice is to learn how not to be a slave to those impulses that arise in us. Not to take what's not freely given. But that's, that doesn't mean that if there's somebody drowning in the canal and there's a pickup truck near the canal with a coil of rope in the back, that you say, where's the owner? we got to call the owner, text him, let's ask him. You know, right? I mean, that's silly. It's silly. But it's, you know, on a fundamentalist level, it's don't take what's not freely given. But it's a, it's a koan. It's something for us to investigate in terms of understanding dukkha and our relationship to it. The third precept is interesting, kamesu michachara, which is usually rendered as not to engage in harmful sexuality. Kama means sensuality. It's about sensual indulgence and sexual, unskillful sexuality, unskillful sensuality. Unskillful sensuality. The idea here is that when when things are unpleasant, what do we do? Well, we could eat. You know, we could. There are all kinds of things we could do. We have all kinds of habits when things. Everybody's got their habit and their pattern. A really horrible day at work. A career bad day at work once some years ago. And I came home just too upset to do anything, so I went to a movie. Didn't work, but you know the effort was go someplace where I can lose myself in the pleasantness of. But unfortunately, the movie was Black Sunday, and <laughs> it was long. <laughs> and when I came out, I was ready for dinner. But it's not just about. Sexuality, it's about sensuality as well. The fifth precept is the opposite response to unpleasant experience. We anesthetize ourselves. So we can anesthetize ourselves or indulge in pleasant experience any way to cover up that dukkha, that list of unpleasant things. So, you know, no drugs, no alcohol to create heedlessness. Does that apply in a hospice setting? No. So its context is important. The meaning, it's, it's again, it's a koan. You know? I mean, at, the, at that point, then you could have a ninth part of the right medication. <laughs> you know? you know? 
It's not that drugs and alcohol are somehow, you know, but there is a temperance streak in, in the tradition. And people will apologize for having a glass of wine on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Why Sunday? I don't know. <laughs> I guess it comes with the culture, huh? So we don't, you know. But that's a way of turning off the unpleasant. The other way is trying to bury it. So the third and fifth precepts are aiming at how we deal with unpleasant experience. We don't like unpleasant experience. We don't like it so much that we'll wreck the place to make it stop. Vibhava Tanha is very destructive. Right? Livelihood is interesting because the Buddha didn't say too much about it. Mostly because most of the monks and nuns he were teaching, they, you know, they had their list of 200 and something precepts they had to follow. They didn't have time to worry about livelihood. For lay people, he said, don't deal in poisons, don't deal in weapons, don't deal in, in living beings. Maybe he said don't deal in meat. I don't remember that. Living beings, but whatever. You couldn't be a Safeway manager today. You know, it's much more complex. Is being a file clerk okay? File clerk for Halliburton? Or file clerk for the ACLU? What are we talking about? The context is important. We're talking about with all these three things. We're talking with all these five, the five precepts and the three elements of the sila path. We're talking about how we live with other people. There's a story about the Buddha. He was in Kosambi. And I believe he was there, this may have been early on after his awakening, seven or eight years afterwards. And the monks and the monks were squabbling. You know, and then he, took, he went to him and said, cool it, and they said, maybe he didn't use those words, but, and they said, don't worry your pretty little enlightened head about this, we'll take care of it, but they didn't, so he, he left. And he went to see his cousin, Anaruda, who was living in the forest with three or four other monks. And he shows up and he says to Anaruda, he says, are you guys getting along okay out here? Anaruda said, yeah, we're doing doing pretty good. He said, well, how do you do that? These guys I left back there, they, they won't stop. How do you guys get along? And Anaruda said, well, you know, I regard it as such a blessing to be able to live with these companions that I say to myself, why not set aside what I am minded to do and instead do what they are minded to do? And they feel the same. And so we live together as milk and water. That's an incredibly high standard to set aside what I am minded to do and do instead what they are minded to do. It's, it's basically, these, the whole practice is a koan. And it's a koan off the cushion. It's a matter of engaging your heart and your understanding, both in knowing the situation and being able to move. You know, it's not what you do. 
don't cause harm. Do you think the doctor who was who was doing surgery on Joan Rivers was intending to put her in critical con- condition? No. Is he supposed to say, well, I can't do surgery anymore because I might do harm? No. The intention, it's about the intention. And these the situations are not clear-cut. But they show up in some highlighted ways. Let me give you an example. A friend of mine in New York is a member of the feminist literati there. It's the scene that meets in these apartments in the Upper West East Side that... Uh, the apartments are the whole floor of the building. You know, you get off the elevator and you're in the foyer of their apartment. And they were they were having a party for a woman from the Congo. And this woman was in New York because there was a price on her head in the Congo because she had become an activist in fighting the culture of of uh, wartime rape that's going on in. The Congo. You have one gang comes through the village, and then three weeks later, the gang's chasing them, comes through the village. Each time, any woman between the ages of eight and 80 becomes a victim. And so this woman, name is Miriam Bahimba, was in New York, and she was being hosted by people who had resources to help. And towards the end of the evening, the hostess says, well, what can we do for you? And she, and this is usually the time when you say, well, you know, it's time to write a check. Who do we make it out to? And she said, well, what we really need are guns. We don't need to use them particularly, but we need them to know we have them. And my friend said that within about 20 minutes, 80% of the people were gone. And the 20% that remain wrote checks. How do you respond to that? I've presented that question in Dharma circles, and the answers are both. Some people would, and some people wouldn't. It's not that there's a right answer. It's the kind of situation that is a koan, that has to be answered with your life, with what you do. And we do it for the purpose of the cessation of suffering, the cessation of dukkha for the purpose of fulfilling the Buddha's teaching, because that's the way we free ourselves from the compulsions of our organism and our our habits. So I would just, um, before I take a few minutes for questions or comments or discussion on whatever, I'd just like to say, you know, there's a tendency in, uh, in us to want some security, to want stability, to want safety. That's why we don't like this Anicca business, this impermanence business. We just don't like it, particularly the, the big impermanence. We don't like that one. You know, Got to live forever or die trying. <laughs> you know. Fundamentalist kind of approach says if you're good, there'll be a reward down the line. You'll be reborn Whatever. The Buddha is saying, pay attention to the quality of your heart and the quality of your freedom and the freedom and the, the end of suffering, the ending of suffering for others. The ability to recognize suffering in ourselves and others makes it possible for us to step back. 
I can always think of a cop. Step back from that tanha. Nothing to see here. Move right along. (laughs) If we could only recognize it. So the heart of the Dharma task is to understand dukkha, to abandon the tanha that gives rise to it. Realize the cessation and live the path of peace. And ethical practice is at the heart of that. Because no matter how much you meditate, you probably spend more time walking around in the world than you do on the cushion. So where the rubber hits the road is the midst of our relationship with others. Let me see if people have comments or questions, please. Maybe can you say from your own personal experience, which of those has been hardest for you? Oh, it's different at different times. My focus has been on different things at different times. I can say that these days, and probably for the past year and a half, two years, maybe a little more, my practice off the cushion has been way more productive of insight into dukkha than my practice on the cushion. Because, boy, am I running into it all over the place. Right speech is tricky because it means monitoring your intention. People want to make you know, speech a matter of you shouldn't say this and you shouldn't say that and you should, you know, don't, no third-party speech. No, there's no rule. It's about the intention, the quality of your heart. So being, what happens with speech is, my experience anyway, the mouth starts going and who knows what's going to come out. You ever find yourself saying something going, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm saying it, and then you finish? You know? <laughs> hey, really? You know, it's... So the, the trick is, with speech, it's not whether you tell a lie or whether you... What is harsh speech? Raising your voice? You know, you've got to raise your voice if the kid's running towards the street. You know, the bright line measurement is not as important as the quality of the heart, the intention. Is the intention renunciation, stepping back from, abandoning tanha, or is it on behalf of friendliness, you know, kindness, um, compassion? And that's, and the speech will reflect that. You know, what's right, right speech? You know, how do you even classify if somebody says so-and-so for president, and you say so-and-so for president? Somebody else could say, so-and-so for president. Well, it's not the content of the words. And we become so locked on the symbolic content of the particular language. You know, we're talking about true and false as if they were about propositions. And most of our speaking isn't about propositions. True and false is true to our heart and our understanding and not in the service of tanha. Now, sometimes there are mixed, there are certainly times when there are mixed motivations. It's almost no time that I can think of when motivation is pure. There's always multiple motivations. So I always credit myself with the best one (laughs) if I can find one and go forward. Any, any other thoughts, comments? 
Yeah, please. This is what I've reflected on from time to time lately. It's a small matter. I'm in the grocery store, and as I go from shelf to shelf, I look for the carton of milk that has the date on it that's farthest in the future. Mm -hmm. I look for the tomato best in the bin and so mm -hmm. forth. And I think, well, I'm getting those things because I want the best for myself. But mm -hmm. from the grocery store's perspective, I ought to be taking the carton of milk that's in the front. Perhaps the first tomato that comes to hand. I don't know. It seems like there's, uh, there's something there to play with. The grocery store is uh, a person, place, or thing. The grocery store cares. This is an entity. It's like the government. So let's take the other shoppers then. Oh, the other shoppers. Well, you know, they're looking for their stuff. We're looking for our stuff. You know, we can we can find a moral issue. You know, is the meat that's on the shelf in the store has it been killed for you intentionally, or not? So you know, the Buddha said. He refused to prohibit eating meat except that meat that was killed specifically for the monk. So, you know, you can get involved in speculative activity. What does it mean? What's more important? The Buddha said, just pull out that dart. Notice the craving for certainty, the craving for rightness. We want to be right. You want to do the right thing. We want to be right because then we feel secure and good. Safe. We'll last into the future if we're good and safe. So notice that, that tendency to want to be right and leave the question of the dates on the milk to themselves. <laughs> Dukkha occurs in here. It's not on the... No. That's just you know my, my take. Anything else? Well, just you know, when you're looking for a rule, remember it's not about the rule. The rule's just a flag that something's important here. And then, then you find it in your heart. I think what I'll, I, I like to end sometimes by sort of echoing the Western... Uh, what do they call it when you send everybody off and you, you say, uh, go forth and cling no more? <laughs> yeah, the benediction, yes. Go forth and cling no more. Thank you. <laughs>